0: Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. Well, as I mentioned several episodes ago, we are now back on track in theoretical practical theology with Peter Van Maastricht. If you're new to the show, especially if you're new to Teaching Thursdays, this is typically a twice a month thing that we do on the Better Bible Reading Podcast where You'll typically have sermon recordings or uh, kind of mini classes that we go through. And uh, a few months back, we decided—I should say I decided—and <laughs> you have decided to agree because you're you're watching and listening—to really take uh, a different approach to teaching Thursdays, and that is to choose a pretty significant volume and work all the way through it. Now, this is a systematic theology, so. We're going to be going through all of the traditional topics that you would cover in kind of an A to Z theology. But I chose one uh, from the late Peter van Maastricht, a Dutch uh, scholar and pastor recommended by the late Jonathan Edwards as the best book you can get next to the Bible. And the reason for that is because Peter Van Maastricht's attempt at systematic theology is not just heavy on the knowledge side of things, but it's heavy on the practical side of things. Sometimes in works of theology, uh, you have to kind of sacrifice one or the other. And people who have spent the time to deal with Peter Van Maastricht's work will say that he doesn't sacrifice either. He, in fact, lifts up... The endeavor of the knowledge of theology as well as the practical implications that it should have in our lives. Hence, theoretical, practical theology. Uh, There's a link to this book in the description. I think you can make the best use of your time with me going through this page by page if you actually have a copy of it yourself. But even if you don't, you can certainly benefit from this episode. I wanted to give a shout out to my patrons over at Patreon.com, because as the months go on, I find myself incredibly thankful more and more for the support that my patrons give me, because it allows me to do things like this. It allows me to cover the costs of what it takes to publish these videos, have equipment to do this, have a computer to make everything work right, and obviously the cost of posting a website and all that. That's really... uh, coming from the support of my patrons. So huge shout out to them for making this show possible week in and week out. If you are benefited from the show, if you want to know a way you could support me in the work that I'm doing, better Bible reading, you can go to patreon.com P A T R E O N.com forward slash better Bible reading. You can pledge a one-time a support gift, or you can join one of these support tiers. When you do that, you gain exclus- you gain access to exclusive content as my way of saying thank you for being a supporter of the show. All right. Well, it's been a while since we've done this. As you know, listening to the uh, normal episodes on the podcast, I took about a month off and uh, our study and Teaching Thursdays is already just twice a month. So it's really been A little bit of a a good stretch (laughs) since we've been together on Teaching Thursdays in Theoretical Practical Theology. But if you have been following along, if you put a bookmark where we left off, you will know that we are on page number 86. And today we're going to be working all the way through page 98. So we've been dealing with Peter Van Maastricht's second theorem, covering that kind of broad category of the nature of theology, that's what he's dealing with in the beginning of this book, Uh, we are in the middle of his second theorem of that, which is the definitum of theology. Now, Peter Van Maastricht has a fourfold approach to everything that he covers, and we are now in that fourth of the fourfold approach, which is the practical part. So, in other words, we're dealing with the practical aspects of the definitum, as he calls it, of theology. He gives four points of practice for what we've been talking about so far. And by the way, if you want to be refreshed on what we've been talking about, you can go to the YouTube playlist or just look at the last Teaching Thursday episode on the podcast and you can listen back or watch to be caught up to speed. But his uh, first point of practice that he gives to us is what he calls examination. Now, this opening paragraph on page 86, he gives us kind of a broad picture of everything that he's going to be talking about for the rest of this section. So I want to read that in its entirety because it really gives us a good uh, summary paragraph of what we're trying to come to a conclusion of throughout these next 12 pages. He says, uh, the first point of practice, which is examination. He says, therefore, since only Christian theology ought to be impressed upon Christians, and since so many kinds of false theology and so-called theology surround it on all sides, it is in the first place a duty incumbent on us that we cautiously distinguish the latter from the former. This duty is, number one, prescribed by scripture, number two, recommended by the matter itself, inasmuch as it is most shameful and equally pernicious to be deceived and swayed in a matter of such great importance, and three, induced by the danger of error and seduction, which threatens on every side. This threat of danger comes from Satan, the seducer. Who blinds from false prophets who are the agents of Satan, from the inconstancy, blindness, and sluggishness of one's own mind, and from the variety and deceit of errors which bear a form of religion or of genuine theology. So the most disciplined senses are required here to discern good from evil, as well as knowledge and all discernment for testing those things that differ. And number four, where also Bound to this duty by the importance of distinguishing between true and false theology, upon which hangs either the eternal destruction or the eternal salvation of the soul. All right, so in that paragraph, Peter Van Maastricht has given four categories of practice. For number one, we might call it examination. Number two, shunning falsehood. Number three, studying truth, and number four, I'm summarizing as living it out. Now I've underlined those four in that paragraph. So he calls examination uh, what is to be understood as prescribed by scripture. Number two, the shunning of falsehood is recommended by the matter itself. In other words, shunning falsehood is an implied point of practice because the matter itself is so important. We're talking about theology, after all, so it comes with the territory of wanting to come to a conclusion of what theology is, biblically speaking. It's so important to do that, that an implied point of practice is to shun whatever is false. Okay? Number three, the study of truth is described by Peter van Maastricht as uh, the motivation of being induced by the danger of error and seduction in other words satan and demons false prophets their goal is to get us away from the knowledge of truth their goal is to seduce us and to uh, to cause us to buy into falsehood to buy into a false knowledge to be deceived and so our point of practice there, because those things are true, because we do have enemies, we should study the truth. And then, number four, he says we're bound to this duty by the importance of distinguishing true and false theology. Why? Because upon it is the eternal destruction or the eternal salvation of our souls. Now, that's kind of a mouthful in all of the Peter Van Maastricht saying, because If you're following those four points of practice, uh, you might be tempted in your 21st century way of thinking, so would I, to assume that those first three of the four are really just talking about
1: knowledge. It's only the fourth point, living it out,
0: that would be what we call practical. Now, it's interesting that he presents all four of these as practical parts. But really what he's doing is not necessarily giving us four different, distinct, separated categories of practice. What he's doing actually is building those four points to a final conclusion. It's, it's kind of a logical flow, if you will, in those four points. Number one, he's saying it's prescribed by Scripture. Well, if it's true that it's prescribed by Scripture, then we need to shun any sense of falsehood. And if we need to shun any sense of falsehood, that's only true by, number three, studying the truth itself. And if all three of those are important, they're important for the reason that whether we get that right or wrong hangs the eternal destruction or salvation of our souls. So it's kind of four different elements of practice, but really one grand statement that's being made by building all four of those together. So, those are the four things that he's treating in the rest of this section. Four points of practice. The very first one that he's covering is the idea of examination, and in that he means the scriptural implications of this. Uh, he presents to us at the bottom of page 86. He says there are signs and modes of examination. He says that this is a matter of scrutiny that we need to undertake. Scrutiny because Scripture is our only guide in true authority in what theology is and is not. This should be nothing new to us because this is what Peter van Maastricht has been doing. All throughout the book so far, he's been reminding us that true theology is Christian theology. And the only way for us to know what Christian theology is, is to go to the Bible. That's where we find the teaching, that's where we understand what Christianity is, what theology is, how God is revealed to us. He says that there are criteria that we need to hold to. He says uh, one way of understanding criteria is if something goes beyond Scripture. On the other side, one criteria is if something leaves out something that is found in Scripture. The two examples he gives of this, uh, a tradition of theology that goes beyond would be Roman Catholicism. He says that their whole system of tradition is an example of going beyond Scripture. You have scriptural teaching, but then in Roman Catholic theology, you also have of equal authority church tradition. And that church tradition could be a whole host of things, and is a whole host of things, that aren't found in the Bible. That's no problem for Roman Catholicism, but it should be a problem for us that understand Christian theology can only be built from the Scriptures themselves if we're insisting upon something that is not found in the bible then we're no different from roman catholicism that's an example of not meeting the particular criteria as peter van maastricht says then he says an example of socinianism now you might not know what socinianism is but this would be a false sect of so-called christianity but this example uh is one that doesn't go as far as Scripture does. And the example that Peter Van Maastricht uses in Socinianism is that they deny the Trinity. Now, you could also add, in our modern day, Mormonism, which claims to be Christian but denies the Trinity, or Jehovah's Witness, which claims to be Christian but denies the Trinity. Uh, Other examples he gives is that they don't meet certain criteria Um, because they don't base their point of authority on the teaching of Christ himself. Now, this is, you you could say, in some ways, what we just described uh, in the previous examples, but in these, he's thinking of other world religions, such as Judaism and Islam. Uh, Both of those, as a major presupposition of their whole system, Judaism and Islam, they deny the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, Islam might claim that Jesus is a prophet, but the subject matter of what they say he teaches isn't the Bible. They say that the Bible is corrupt, and the Bible gives a false picture of who Jesus is with false words that he never said and false miracles that he never performed. And so their conception of so-called Christ or Jesus is not in the biblical tradition, it's in a different one altogether. So those are various examples that Peter Van Master gives. And he says that this is that principle of examination. If you want to study true theology, uh, if you want to maintain that practice of examination, thinking through the different systems of theology, then it's based on that principle of scriptural authority. Can't go beyond it, you can't fall short of it, and you can't resituate it in a different system altogether. That would be the distorted examples of Roman Catholicism, Socinianism, and Islam, just to name a few. His second point, and I'm going to be a little kind of general here, I won't have time to cover all of the things that Peter Van Maastricht covers. But the second point is his point of practice, which is shunning any false theology. He says that since it is not sufficient merely to have distinguished true theology from a spurious one, it is necessary for everyone, when he has discovered any so called theology, to strive according to his station to cast it out. So it's not enough to simply cling to right theology, one of the ways that we cling to right theology, according to Peter Van Maastricht, is to be mindful, be watchful, and outright
1: denounce
0: that false theology. He gives three important considerations for this, because we might have, by him saying something like this, we might have in our mind, this doesn't
1: apply to me. Or, how does it apply
0: to me? Or, what's the way to go about doing this? Those are really the three things that he deals with. He asks the question, who is obligated to this? Well, he starts in the likely place that you would expect. Preachers of Christian truth. Very easy for us to assume that Holding right theology and denouncing false theology is the role of the preacher. Or we might even say that it's the role of the theology professor. That's what the seminaries are for. That's what the Bible colleges are for. That's what the resources online, maybe even me, that's what Kevin is for. On Better Bible reading. That's not what I'm for. That's not my task. Okay. Who says preachers. Second. He says,
1: the magistrate. Now this, in United
0: States, this is, you know, centuries removed from our time today. It's also in a different system of government. The idea of separation of church and state was not a thing for Peter Van Master like it is for us. But I would say, because it's not a thing for us like it was for him... I would say that the implication for government officials to uphold right theology and denounce false theology is even more important for us where we do experience
1: the separation of church and state. And that's because a system of government that claims a particular religion or a country that
0: allies itself with this religion and not this one, well, you kind of understand it's a take-it-or-leave-it thing. To be part of that society is to be uh, subsumed under that system of theology. But we, where we are scattered people in the United States, scattered religions all across the land, it becomes that much more important to maintain your truth. Now, this is not with a sword and a dagger. This is not with imprisonment for somebody that disagrees with you. But if we care about truth at all, part of that is in the freedom of religion, because we don't want to bind somebody's conscience to what they believe. So we say, in this society, the United States, You're free to practice whatever religion that you hold to insofar as it doesn't denounce the liberties of others or their ability to practice their religion. So this is a a peaceful endeavor. It's not a violent one. But the whole mindset behind that is because truth matters. We would only tell somebody to hold to this religion whether or not they believe it, If truth doesn't matter, because if they don't believe it, well, that doesn't matter. If truth doesn't matter, if truth does matter, then there's no way that they can hold to it unless they believe it. So, the magistrate, the government officials, the people in places of local, state, federal authority, it matters if they claim to be a Christian to make that loud and clear, because you're showing that you're following a principle of truth, not subjectivism, not it doesn't matter what anybody believes. And this is where the art of making a defense of the faith, apologetics, uh, stating the case of what we believe about Christ and why it is far superior to other any other religion, any other system of theology. It matters that preachers do that. It also matters that government officials do that.
1: And number three, whoever has professed Christian truth. So, well, that means we're not off the hook. I can understand the preacher, I can even understand
0: somebody that's in a place of authority in the public sphere. But now, he says anyone who has professed Christian truth. Now, what's important here is that this paragraph that he writes all of this in, he's citing a whole lot of scripture in order to back up why these particular categories of people should. Now, in that consideration of any professing Christian, he cites Matthew 7.15, Romans 16.17, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17, Titus 3, 10 through 11, and 2 John, verse 10. This is hardly a loose argument on the part of Peter Van Maastricht. He is arguing something that is saturated in the New Testament. Uh, Beware false teachers, Jesus says in in Matthew 7. Uh, Paul says in Romans 16, Be mindful of those who sow in division, who breed falsehood among the believers, have nothing to do with those who are doing such things. The only way that we can do this is not only by maintaining what is true, but by denouncing what is false, and we all have an obligation to do this we call ourselves a Christian. He says the reason that we should care about this, though, you're asking the question of why, is because false theology strives to overturn the gospel of Christ. It blasphemes the way of truth. It bewitches people so that they do not yield to the truth. It ransacks churches. It's destructive, and ultimately it's hateful to Christ. Our gesture
1: of our love for Christ is our hatred of
0: falsehood. That's why it matters. And then he gives just a couple considerations of how this should be done. He says we should do this, again, not by grabbing our swords and daggers, not by grabbing our guns, not by imprisonment or anything like that, but we do it by apologetics. We argue our case. We make the truth claim based on Scripture. He says we do it by refuting those who teach different doctrines. He gives Stephen as a prime example in Acts
1: he says, number two, uh,
0: we do this by strengthening their own flock in Christian truth. So we make truth a big deal in our Christian fellowship, in our church. Uh, we care about what society says about this thing or this thing, and we make our argument, we uphold the biblical position the counter-argument to society, you might say. So let's just use a couple examples. Uh, What is being said about homosexuality? Well, at the time of recording this podcast, it is so-called Pride Month, the month of June. It's not enough to say I disagree with that. The way that we maintain what the Bible says is by exploring what the Bible says in our Christian uh, fellowships. So, maybe the pastor does a sermon series, or maybe a Sunday school teacher does a series on what is biblical sexuality. What are the parameters of sexuality? What is God's design for marriage? Another example would be abortion. This is certainly a hot topic in our society today. It's not enough to say I disagree with abortion. What is the biblical case for the sanctity of human life? Make that a big deal in your church. Make that a big deal in your small group. Make that a big deal as you interact with other professing Christians at your church, one-on-one. These are all examples of ways, the mode that we shun false theology and uphold true Christian theology. Okay? The third point that he gives is the study of true theology. He says when any false theology has been cast out, it is the necessary that an indefatigable concern for and study of true Christian theology should advance among all who profess Christ. Now note how closely this relates to point number 2 and just remember back at the beginning how I said all four of these build on each other and kind of overlap in Intermingle. He's saying, if you've hacked away false theology, true theology needs to be reinforced and built up so that it can flourish in place of where that false theology was trying to work itself in. He says that this is true in the Christian experience. He says, even citing Roman First uh, Corinthians thirteen. That even now, our knowledge is only in part. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have an exhaustive knowledge by the time we leave this earth, but it does mean that because we know that we're limited, because we know that we don't know everything, that should actually be a motivation for us to study more, for us to grow in a deeper knowledge of the truth. The whole idea of Christian sanctification being set apart from the world to grow more and more into the image of Christ implies maturity in knowledge. A great uh, passage that speaks of this is Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about the system that God has put in place for the church to grow as a collective organism together. God has appointed pastors, teachers, etc. to grow the body of Christ into full maturity into a full knowledge of the son of god as as paul says so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine by the cunning work of the evil one by the dark world that surrounds us the only way for us to survive the threats of the evil one and the only way for us to truly live up to our christian potential is to continue maturing. And he says here, that is where the study of true theology happens. In fact, I might even say at this point, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to do what we're doing together now, studying a systematic theology. Because it wouldn't be right for us to say, well, I'm matured enough. I know enough about the Bible. Uh, I don't think I need to learn anything else. That would be terrible because something is going to fill itself in that void of complacency. And that something, if it's not true theology, is going to be false theology. Second uh, thing that he does here in this passage is he highlights a whole lot of different kind of obligations for us to follow. That's kind of what you see in the way that he upholds the endeavor to study true theology. He, on page 89 and following, he talks about the quality of true theology. He says it's not just a vain bookish, there's that knowledge-only idea, it's not just a vain bookish speculative knowledge, it's a true growth in holiness. Uh, it should be true for ministers, for magistrates, for all Christians. There's that same kind of threefold audience. Uh, the pastors need to do it. Uh, government officials, public officials need to do it, and anybody who calls themselves a Christian. So we can't we can't run uh, away from this call if we call ourselves a Christian. He says the motivation for this is that. True theology is excellent, it's delightful, it's useful, it's necessary. Because ignorance is an evil thing. Those are the five reasons he gives for motivations. And then he gives examples of how to do this. He says the means of obtaining theology, this is on page 92. There are several different ones. First he says that he says let us seek it from its author. First and foremost it must be recognized that theology's supreme author and first source is God himself. So it has to do with our relationship with God himself. Studying theology is not our own personal individual endeavor to find out facts about God. According to Peter Van Maastricht, we have to go to God in order to learn theology. We have to go to God in order to find out about him. We go to the source, and that source is God. So it is a relational endeavor. This really corrects us from the idea of just dry, lifeless Book reading or dry, lifeless Bible reading.
1: Married to the idea of
0: biblical knowledge, growing in our knowledge of Scripture, married to that is that relational element of communion with God Himself. This is why things like prayer, this is why things like Meditating on the word, trying to memorize it, thinking about how it impacts our lives. This is why all of those things come into the equation. The idea of devotional reading, small group studies, all of that. All of those are meant to be exercises of communing with God Himself. Because you can't come to a right knowledge of theology without this in place this is the highest and most foundational principle that there is to studying true theology that the means of obtaining this true theology is going to its author going to its source and that is God himself finally he gives on page 94 before he gets into his fourth and final point of practice He says that there are 11 rules for academic study. Now, I'm not going to go through all 11 of these, but I just think that it's important. I wanted to highlight that just for the sake of emphasizing how much Peter Van Maastricht doesn't want to separate the academic study of Scripture and theology from that personal, relational communion with God.
1: It would be enough to say that everyday Christians have this, but what does that say
0: about the academics? Well, for the academics, the same rules apply, the same principles apply, because it's the same theology we're talking about. Now, it might include studying Hebrew and Greek, it might include working through a whole lot of material that the average Christian wouldn't necessarily concern themselves with, But the goal and the means towards the goal is the exact same, and that's why he gives rules for academic study. He gives 11 of them, page 94 and 95. If you do have the book, it's worth just reflecting on these because they do highlight how important he says. In fact, let me just read number 10. This is rules for academic study, I might add. Number 10, in all things... Let the student occupy himself with hearing, reading, meditating, praying, and disputing. There's just one prime example of how he sees this whole endeavor to the study of true theology as a relational endeavor to commune with God Himself. His fourth and final point of practice is simply put the study of practical theology. Now that's subtle. But remember, he said back on page uh, 86, he says that the reason that we care about this is because the eternal damnation and salvation of the soul is dependent upon practical theology. I have in mind here the book of Hebrews, where the author says that we should focus on our growth and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Growth in holiness
1: is not optional for Christians.
0: So practical theology is not optional. We put into practice the knowledge that we gain, it penetrates our hearts, and we live in light of it. We progress in true Holiness, day in and day out. Our demeanor is one of holiness. Our interaction with theology is
1: practical. It says, indeed, the study of theology, to
0: the extent that it is true theology, is not sufficient unless it is earnestly devoted to practical theology and to practice. For this reason, our theorem does not urge a merely Christian theology, but rather a specifically theoretical practical theology. Does that ring any bells? This is notice that what he's what he's been doing is he's doing a callback. He's been doing this through the book, calling back to why theoretical practical theology is the only sufficient way of doing it. It's because the theoretical, the knowledge, the Head must be engaged, but that's not enough. It also has to be the heart, the practical, and the hands, the practical. It's a full orbed system
1: of theology.
0: That's really his conclusion to this entire section. He says, This is the big idea, and then he gives various motives for this. He says, Many things, as on page 96, many things urge the serious study of practical theology and theological practice. He gives four. Uh, number one, actually, I'm sorry, he gives six. But number one, he says, Christian theology is not theoretical, or theoretical-practical, but rather, it is purely and preeminently practical. This presupposition will be demonstrated in its own place. Not only is the whole of theology said to be doctrine according to godliness, do you remember that way back at the beginning of the book? That was his basis for theology as practical, essentially practical. Not knowledge and then eventually practical, but at the heart it's practical. Because doctrine, truth, is according to godliness. Whether or not something is truth is whether it upholds and works towards godliness or not, i.e. practical. He says, The knowledge of the truth according to godliness, and to pertain to teaching, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfectly equipped for every good work. There he cites 2 Timothy three, sixteen and 17. Number three. On practice hangs salvation, which is denied to bear theory. he cites John thirteen seventeen James one twenty two number four on practice likewise depends the refutation of gainsayers more than on theory and this is true even with regard to their conversion. number five by the study of practical theology and of theological practice we check. As effectively as possible, the calumnies of the Arminians and the papists by which our theology is accused of being useless, vain, and merely theoretical. Now that was kind of a lot there in that fifth point. But what he's saying, the study of practical theology and of theological practice proves whether our particular tradition is the right one or not. He gives the example of Armenians and Papists or Roman Catholics there. You could say this really, and we have to be careful here because this is kind of comparing two different things, but let's just say, for example,
1: how do you know that your denomination is the right one or the most biblically faithful one compared to others? How do you know? Is it Just because
0: you think that the statement of faith or the historic confession that that denomination holds to makes the most sense? Or is it because it seems to promote the most practical Christianity? It seems to promote the most godly endeavor to living for Christ.
1: It's an interesting way to rate
0: our theological tradition. It's an interesting way to think about who and what we associate with as Christians. He says you might be tempted to do so merely based on elements of knowledge, merely based on which one explains a particular passage of Scripture or a particularly divisive point of doctrine, like predestination
1: or baptism. But does it promote the most godly endeavor of living? Because if it doesn't, well, it's suspect. If it doesn't,
0: could mean there's something wrong with the individual, because there are certainly people that live with exception to any tradition that they're associated with. But it could show that the tradition itself is flawed. Maybe it's not outright heretical, maybe it's not anti-Christian, but it's a less biblically faithful option than others. Now, of course, something is not going to promote true godly living and be doctrinally incorrect because the two always go together. But because the two always go together, we should assess the truthfulness of what tradition we belong to based on the practical outcome, not only the knowledge. And then number six, and the final motive for this, is that reminder that Satan and his followers resist matters of practice with a no less vigorous attack than matters of Of theory. In fact, day by day, he hatches all kinds of new and novel plans to shut off practical study and the practice of study. Now, that's interesting. We read a lot in the Bible about how Satan seeks to distort the truth, but think about the end game of that.
1: Think about what happens. In Romans 1, to those who suppress the truth. How do they suppress the truth? According to Paul, they
0: suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the theory in practice.
1: Practice is the distortion that Satan has in mind at the end of the line. He wants you to believe falsely in
0: order that you might practice
1: falsely. This should really be a light bulb moment for many of us, because we typically divorce our practice
0: from what we believe. Or we say, yeah, believe a certain thing, but then we validate our practice that would be antithetical to it. Should always remember that the evil one
1: wants us to not only be evil thinkers,
0: but evil doers. And he hasn't bring his brought his goal to completion unless that happens. It's an interesting and profound warning that Peter Van Master gives for us, and it's a wonderful motivation for why we should have practice.
1: To the highest level of respect. It
0: should be our chief motivation as Christians. But we only get there with the right theory, with the right knowledge, with the right theology. And so this has been, hopefully, a really helpful session today in our time with Peter Van Maastricht in Theoretical Practical Theology. And again, he seems to almost be giving a sales pitch for theoretical, practical theology. But he does a great job at it, and I think uh, I find myself especially thankful for his system that he promotes to us, because it's so utterly biblical, and it is so uh, helpful to situating my Christian life in my own experiences, thinking about temptation, thinking about Uh, my own responsibilities, thinking about my friends and family, and marrying that all together in a way that motivates me for studying the truth, refuting falsehood, and seeing that all of that lends itself to living a holy life, practicing the theory that I embrace. That'll conclude our time today in Teaching Thursdays. And we've made it all the way to page 98, where we will pick up Peter Van Maastricht's third theorem, the definition of theology. But that'll be where we find ourselves next time on Teaching Thursdays. Until then, I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. I'll see you on another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast
1: real soon. Take care.